I said last week, I, I challenged us as a congregation, we're, throughout our Advent preaching series, we're just looking at this one passage and just drawing out different aspects of beauty, of who Jesus is. This is a tremendous passage for seeing the glory of Jesus, and we've challenged one another, we've challenged our congregation to, be, to work on memorizing this passage throughout the Advent season. So maybe next week and the following we'll have some opportunities for some folks to share the progress they're making. And listen, if you can't do the whole thing, that's okay. Just work at it. You will be amazed at how God's Word begins to open up and really get planted in your heart as you do the work of memorization. So this is our passage, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, page 940 in your pew Bibles. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Rachel. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word together, asking him by his spirit to be at work in our hearts. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, as we learn in this passage that whenever we encounter the Word of God, we are not just encountering words on a page, we are actually encountering the Lord Jesus. So would you just expand our understanding and our minds to know that we are in your presence, the presence of your Word, that Jesus, you are present with us, and you are powerfully at work in us. And I ask that you would send your Spirit to open our hearts, to open our eyes, to open our ears, that we would hear from you, that we would see you, that we would behold your glory, the glory of the light of the world. 
come and work in us, your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we've said, we've been in an Advent series where we're, we're talking about that, that challenge that we're presented with in the ways that we celebrate Christmas in our culture. You know, in our culture, Christmas is not just a Christian holiday. It's not just a holiday that the church observes. It's also something that our culture observes. And Christmas throughout the years has become secularized in so many ways. And one of the challenges is that all of these different ways of understanding Christmas and celebrating Christmas that are not bad in and of themselves, you know, the, the carols and the movies and the parties and the presents and the, 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 the sleigh and the reindeer, all those things are not in and of themselves bad, but here's what happens. Those things begin to distract from what is really at the heart of Christmas, and that is Jesus. So there's a real challenge in our hearts. As, and that challenge is, is that as we come into this season, our focus, our hopes, our hearts are moved away from what Christmas is really about, namely Jesus, and are moved on to all these other things that are in, in and of themselves not all bad. But that's the shape of our hearts. Our hearts are always being lured away by created things. And one of the challenges about that is that it's usually good things. At the heart of our brokenness is that we make good things in our life ultimate things. And that's what happens in Christmas. So there's a battle taking place. And what we have been focusing on in our Advent series is saying, how do we intentionally do battle in our hearts, direct our, our hearts, our affections, and our attention to Jesus even as we go through this Christmas season. And that's what we've been talking about. At the same time, there's one aspect of the way that we celebrate Christmas, whether it be in the church or in the culture, that unmistakably points to Jesus. And that is the symbol of light. Isn't it interesting how how much Christmas is about light. I mean, look here as we put our decorations up here. We almost instinctively know that Christmas goes with light. Kids, what are some of the ways that you see lights at Christmas? Drew? On the Christmas tree, right? And the beauty of a Christmas tree, you know, we, we put our tree up, we put the lights on it, and we cut the lights off, and we just sit there and look at it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a fond memory. I remember being a kid and just sitting in my living room and just looking at the Christmas tree. So that's a absolutely. What else? Um, some, of us, some of us go Clark Griswold and put lights all over the house, right? Our neighbors are they're going to town. Sandra, okay, we, we had a Christmas party at Sandra's house. The way we gave directions to those coming to our community group Christmas party was, look for the house with lights all over it on the right on the hill. You couldn't miss it. That was the best directions we could give. Any other ways? Any other ways that you see light at Christmas? Yes, the angel on top of a tree. Yes, we see the, the candles in the light, Houston. The star on the top. Yeah, the star. I mean, the more you think about it, you're like, wow. 
what is this thing with Christmas and light? And that's what we're going to look in our passage here. Because for John, they're inseparably connected. In the passage, we're going to see, we're going to behold the glory of Jesus as the light of the world, as the light that has come into the world. That's what we're going to see in the passage as we are just beholding Jesus' glory. So as we come to our passage, look with me at verse 9, which I think is a great Christmas summary verse. If you, you're asking the question, you know, in a lot of our, um, a lot of our movies, they, they're kind of wrestling with the question of what is Christmas about? We were watching Christmas Vacation this past week, and at the end, Clark Griswold, after all he's been through, he discovers the true meaning of Christmas. And he said, I, I know what the meaning of Christmas is. It's being with the ones that you love and sharing what you have. That is not the meaning of Christmas. That's a great implication of Christmas. I encourage you to do that. That is not the meaning of Christmas. Verse 9 is a tremendous summary of what is the meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. That's what Christmas is. The true light that gives light to every living person was coming into the world. That's what Christmas is about. Light comes into the world. Now for John, this has a huge connection to creation. As you read through this passage, it's hard to miss the allusions to the creation account. John wants you, as he's telling you about Jesus coming, to be remembering creation. That's how he starts the passage. In the beginning. When you read in the beginning, what should you think of? You should think of Genesis 1.1. You should think of creation. And as we go back to that creation story and we look at it just right there at the very beginning of the Bible, here's what it tells us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was hovering over the surface of the deep. That's the description of the earth as it was created. When God made the earth initially, it was empty. It was covered in darkness. The, the Hebrew there, uh, it, it gives the sense of chaos. That it was a place that could not be inhabited. Life could not be supported. It was, it was, there was no order in it. There was no way that God's creation could flourish in it. It was shrouded in darkness. And what does God do? God's word confronts the darkness. God speaks into the darkness. And into darkness, he says, let there be light. And as John just told us, when God speaks, who is accomplishing the work there? It is none other than the person of Jesus. Jesus was the very word of God that challenged the darkness and brought forth life and light. That's in the creation account. And everything I just described is John 1. That's what he's saying. That light came in and brought forth life. Now if you follow the creation account, you know it's only a couple chapters in verse 3, in chapter 3, whenever humanity, the, the very pinnacle of God's creation, Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God. They sin. They break His commandments. And in that moment, everything changes. 
They're separated from God and darkness comes into their lives and into God's good creation. So the the sense there is that God spoke against darkness and brought light and yet humanity almost immediately takes God's good creation, a place filled with light and life, back into darkness. And what does God do? He doesn't give up and say, plan B, let's scrap all of this. He determines that even in that place that he would once again move against the darkness that has come into his world to bring forth life. The whole Bible is the story of that. How will God bring his light yet again to bring new creation, recreation? How will he yet again bring light into the darkness? And John says, here's the centerpiece of it, the person of Jesus. As he comes to bring light into the world. Here's the point. Light has to come from the outside. Darkness cannot produce light. And the reality about each of our hearts by nature and about this world is that it is a place of darkness. And so for us to know life, for us to know flourishing For us to know the hope of a future that we were made for, we must have light that comes to us from the outside. We cannot get there on our own. You cannot reason your way into life. You cannot will yourself into life. There is nothing in this world that will bring about the hope and the future that every human being longs for. Technology will not do it. In our culture today, the hopes of technology Or that one day, because of our smartness, because of our innovation, one day we're going to arrive. One day we're going to fix this planet. One day we're going to rid the world of oppression and, and hatred and violence and all of these things. If we just band together, we can do it. Sometimes we believe that in our own hearts. If I can just get my act together. If I can just figure it out, if I can just try harder, then hope is going to come and life is going to come. But the message of Christmas is it won't work because life cannot be found in here and life cannot be found in the world. The message of Christmas is that light has to come from the outside. It's got to be a miracle, just like that miracle at creation of light Coming out of darkness. How does that happen? It's God's miracle. The same thing has to happen in our hearts and in our life. The miracle of light coming from the outside. See, Christmas is entirely a message of grace. A message of rescue. We don't have the resources within us. We are utterly helpless in darkness. And God must speak light into our lives. That's the picture of Christmas. So the question becomes, what is the nature of this light? This is a huge image, not only for the whole Bible, but also for John. Throughout the Gospel of John, he's constantly using the images of light and darkness to help us understand who Jesus is. What does it mean that he says to us, Jesus is that light, the true light, the light of the world? What does he intend to communicate by that? And verse 4 helps us. It helps to color that in. What does it mean? Look at verse 4. Look at what he says about Jesus. That's the in him. The him is Jesus. In him was life. 
And that life was the light of men. So as we ask, what does it mean that he's life? From this verse, you can tell it means life. That's what he's referring to. It is the life of Jesus, the life that he brings, that is that light that's come into the world. It's his life. Now, what life is he referring to here? He's not referring to physical life, although that too comes from Jesus. He's the one who has spoken creation into existence. Verse 3, just before this, says everything was made by him and through him. Everything. So life, physical life, comes through him. But what John is referring to is not physical life, but spiritual life, eternal life, coming to know God, relationship with God, heaven, new birth, life. That's what he's referring to. And he says that life is only in him. Life can only, spiritual life can only be found in Jesus. That's a fundamental truth in the book of John. It's the only place. There's no other way. So by implication, that means that if you do not have Jesus, if you do not know Jesus, then you are dead. That is the teaching of Scripture. That is not popular. You don't have to come up with things to be controversial in Christianity. You can just read the Bible. That is controversial, but it is true. Apart from Jesus, you're dead. Now, if you say that to your coworker or a friend that doesn't know Jesus, hey, I just, I just want to share something with you. If you don't know Jesus, you are dead. They're going to think you're crazy because they're going to say, what, what are you talking about? I'm not dead. I'm alive. I, I, I woke up this morning. I ate breakfast. I'm I'm doing things, I'm breathing, I'm enjoying life, I'm doing this and doing that, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being spiritually dead. That he's cut off from God. That is, unable to see who God is. You see, it's a part of what he means by this connection between life and light. That life, that spiritual life, is the light of men. Why does he describe it in that way? Because think just for a minute about what does light do? Light illumines. It awakens things. Part of how we talk about, you know, if you, if you come to understand something you didn't understand before, you'd say, the light cut on. You know, part of the way that we illustrate understanding something, seeing something, is like a little light bulb. The light bulb come on, it came on. I, I came to see it. I didn't see it before, but I see it now. So this deadness that we're talking about is essentially blindness. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. Not that your heart's not pumping, but that you are utterly blind in your heart to the beauty of who God is. You can't see His glory. So to be spiritually dead means that you see Jesus. You might know things about him, you might believe certain facts about his life, you might even go to church, you might read the Bible, you might be a good person, but yet you cannot see his glory. You cannot see the beauty of who he is, because that only comes with light. That's what it means is the light comes into the world, is that he, he turns on the lights 
in your heart so that you begin to see the glory of God. Over and over in Scripture, light is associated with glory. So for God to shine His light means that He opens the eyes of your heart that those who are, who are spiritually blind, their eyes get open to behold God's glory. That is what it means to know life. That you come to see the glory of Jesus as more valuable than TV and vacations and being thin and being in a relationship or being married or or having that, that perfect house or, or getting presents or, or sex or any of the good things in life. You see, to get light, to have your, your heart open to the light is to see He is far more surpassingly satisfying and fulfilling and beautiful than anything that this life has to offer. Amen. That is what it means. So for Jesus to say that His light is the world, it means that He brings spiritual illumination into who He is, namely the wonders of His glory. That is why it says in verse three, the light shine, verse five, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now, in some of our translations, it says, "The darkness has not overcome it." Whatever translation you're looking at, as you look down to the footnotes, you'll see that it works either way. That Greek word can either mean understanding or it can mean overcome. It can go either way. It's kind of like the English word of grasp. You know, grasp can mean two different things. Grasp can mean that I get a hold of you and pull you down, overcome. Or grasp can mean I get it. I'm grasping what this means. I believe that's what it means. I believe that's the sense in which he uses it. How do you determine what does John, how does John use it here? Well, you look at the context. And I think as we look at the context, particularly verses 10 and 11, we see this is what he's talking about. Can you perceive his glory? Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. There's a great irony in there, is it not? The one who has made all things, Jesus, came into the world. You would think his creation, that we would see him, that we would know the one who has formed us. But yet the great irony of the gospel story is that the world did not recognize him. It didn't see him for who he was. Verse 11 He came to that which was his own. He came to his people, Israel, who should have been looking for him. Their whole story was about pointing to the coming of the Messiah. They of all people should have seen him and said, this is him. The one that we're longing for and waiting for. But the shocker of the gospel story is that they rejected him. Now why? Because their hearts are shrouded in darkness. Because we are by nature spiritually blind. We cannot see His glory. So the light came into the darkness, but the darkness could not see it because it's dark. Because it cannot perceive. And that is the reality of all of our hearts by nature. 
So the question becomes, so how do you see? How do you come to see and behold the glory of Jesus that lights up your whole person in your life? Well, where he goes next is to the new birth. Look in verse 13, what he says here. Verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name. Now, those are mirror images of the same thing. There were some, though most rejected him, there were some that received him. What does it mean to receive Jesus? It means to believe in him. Now, in, in John, that's a little bit different from how we normally think of it in the Bible Belt. When we think of belief in the Bible Belt, we think of head knowledge. Well, yeah, of course, I know who Jesus is, and yeah, I think he's the Son of God, I think he died on the cross, and we know it here, but that's not what John's talking about. He's talking about a trust so deep that you wrap all of your life around it. And you can always tell true belief is at play because it affects your life. You can always look at the life and see, okay, yeah, we're we're looking at real faith here. We're looking at saving, persevering faith here. That's what he's talking about. So there were some that somehow as this light comes in, they see the light. They see who Jesus is and they receive him. They believe in him. They yield up their life to him. They say, you are life. So the question is, how did that happen? If we all by nature in darkness, how does someone say, you are life? I give you my life. How does that happen? Verse 13. Children born not of natural descent. So he's talking about how does this happen? When someone believes, they become a child of God. They come into his family. They, They come alive. They become what the Apostle Paul calls children of light. So how does that happen? That's what he's describing in verse 13. Children born not of natural descent. That is not because you're born into a certain family. Nor of human decision or of husband's will but born of God. How does this happen? You've got to be born of God. In other words, it's got to happen to you. That's, that's Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. He's a religious teacher, and Jesus comes to him, and he says, you know, really, coming into the kingdom is not something you can do. It's not something you can work yourself into. It's not something you can figure out. Nicodemus, it's got to happen to you. You've got to be born again. Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? How do how you get back in your mama's womb? How does that work? Right? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being born from above. I'm talking about God has got to come to you in your deadness and say, let there be light. See, the only way for it to happen To see the beauty of who Jesus is. To come to see that his glory is so much more precious and valuable than anything that this world has to offer is if God comes and gives you new life and gives you new eyes. Apart from that, there's no way. It's entirely by grace. The Apostle Paul describes it. I mean, it's It's amazing when you see parts of Scripture that just so align with one another. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul describes 
He describes salvation in this way. And it's, it's amazing to see this. Again, he's using the image of creation to describe this miracle of God coming into a heart that is dead, a heart that is blind, a heart that cannot see the glory of Jesus, God coming in and giving you new life so that you begin to see who He is. Here's how he describes it. He says this, For it was God who said, let there be light. Okay? When did God say, let there be light? Creation. He's taking you back to creation. You remember that? It was all dark. It was empty. There was nothing there. It was, it was, it was chaotic. There was no life. There was no possibility for life to come out of that. And what did God do? He said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. There was life. That's how God created in the very beginning. <clears throat> for it was God who said, let there be light who made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's his description of conversion. That every time someone is converted to Jesus, every time someone is saved, every time someone becomes a child of God, here's what's happening. God comes to a dark heart that is spiritually blind and cannot see God's glory. Now, you can be a religious person. You can go to church. You can read your Bible. You can pray. You can know certain facts about God. But there's no life because you cannot see that His glory surpasses every other glory. So what has to happen in that heart of darkness? God has got to come and say, let there be light. And when he says, let there be light, what he is doing is opening the heart to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the heart begins to see Jesus and begins to see all of the glory of God is contained in this person. See, apart from that, we're always going to be far more mesmerized by the things of this world. TV is going to be more valuable than Jesus. Georgia football is going to be more valuable than Jesus. Your house and your children and your success and your figure is always going to be more valuable to your heart than Jesus unless God comes to you and says, let there be light. And what happens is that in the person of Jesus, you begin to see a glory that surpasses anything in this world. That is what salvation is. Salvation is not praying a prayer or walking an aisle or becoming a religious person or becoming a moral person or doing religious things. Nothing wrong with those things. Don't hear me wrong. But that's not salvation. Salvation is coming to behold the glory of Jesus and seeing it far surpasses any created thing. It's seeing His glory to a degree that you say, I give you my life. If I have you, I have everything. But take my life. I give it over to you. What do you want? I give it away to you. If I can have you, I have everything. When that begins to happen, our grip on all these other created things begins to do this. That is salvation. So here's our question. 
Has the light of who Jesus is captured your heart? I'm not asking, do you believe that this is true intellectually? I'm not asking, have you had a religious experience? I'm asking, has the glory of Jesus hit home in your heart? Has the light cut on to where you say, he's the king. He is my treasure. Has that happened? That is salvation. And you've got to ask that question. Because it's so easy in the Bible Belt to think salvation is doing certain stuff rather than falling in love with the king of the world. And I imagine for many of us, the response is, yes, I have. But it feels really dim right now. Is that where you are? Yeah, yeah, that, that is true of me. Like, I, I've, I've come to see that Jesus is the ultimate center. But in my life, I'm cold. I'm wrestling with that. Is that where you are today? Because that, that's the battle of the Christian life. The battle of the Christian life is to behold Him as more satisfying than the created things that are all around us. And that, that is the, the nature of our hearts to run after these things, to find life in them. And so the, the Christian battle is a battle to behold Him as more satisfying than all of these other things that we encounter. Is that you, that you now, it feels dim. I certainly relate to that. So what do you do? What do you do if the glory of Jesus is dim in your heart? What do you do if you're sitting here saying, yeah, I don't get it. I see all of you Christians and you're so excited about Jesus. I, I don't get it. I, I, I kind of understand and I've heard it over and over and I don't get it. What, what do you do if you're in that situation or if you're in this place where his, his glory is just kind of veiled? What do you do? It's the same thing for both. Repent and behold. To repent means to just turn away. You know, it's to begin to recognize, my gosh, I take stuff that's been made like children and reputation and work and success and, and, and outfits and, and, and my image and I take all of these created things and I make them ultimate in my life and I look to them for identity. Repentance is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not life. So I'm turning from that as life. My heart goes there. I'm turning from it. And I'm beholding Jesus. I'm fixing my heart on Him. I'm meditating on Christ, as Keller says, till my heart gets hot with Him. See, that's how we change. That's how you enter the Christian life, and it's how you grow. If you're in a place where you're dim, turn from all of those things that capture you. Behold Christ. How do you behold Him? You behold Him in His Word. You just fix your eyes on Him. Speak to Him in prayer. Be with Him in prayer. Be with His people. Behold Christ. That is how we begin to fall in love with His glory. Let me stop there just for a minute. Well, actually, let me close with this. Then we'll have just a second to discuss. It's the, the, I love the conversion of St. Augustine. St. Augustine was this uh, 
church leader, probably the greatest theologian, teacher, thinker the church has ever known. He, he lived around 400 A.D. So we're, we're talking, this guy comes along just a couple hundred years after Jesus. And yet we are still standing on his shoulders in our understanding of the gospel and who Jesus is. Now the thing to understand about Augustine is that he, he was a guy who, who had strong passions in his heart and his life. He, he was addicted to sex. He was a sex addict. He was absolutely controlled by that. He, he was addicted to success and to wealth and to money. And he wrestled. He wrestled for this long period in his life where he, where he wanted to follow God. He wanted to know God. But there's these things in his life that were always winning out. They were the greatest barrier in his life. And he would try and try and try to, to let go of those things and come to God. But he always went back and he always went back. But then it was a day that everything changed. It was the day of his conversion. And it was a day where he didn't do anything Something got done to him. The lights came on. And here's how he described, looking back, this is him writing years later, looking back on his conversion. Here's what he says. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Love that. He, he calls all of those things that just had their grip in him, that just had their, their teeth sunk into his heart. He calls them fruitless joys. They were joys that bore no fruit in his life. They were temporary. They didn't bring peace and lasting wholeness. You know that about the things in your life you struggle with? That there's this temporary joy, but there's no lasting peace. There's no life from it. He said how sweet it was when I was finally Rid of those things in my heart. How did he get rid of them? Look at how he describes it. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. He calls God over and over and over the sovereign joy. That God is a joy that comes in and displaces every other joy in our heart. You drove them from me and you took their place. Oh, Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. See that description of conversion by Augustine? That the nature of conversion is God coming in and driving out all of the things that, that have their grips upon our heart, driving them out by a greater, more satisfying joy, sovereign joy. It's coming to see that, God, you are more satisfying. You see, you can't produce that. It's got to happen to you. You drove them from me. So what are we asking God to do? Make this your prayer. God, drive those fruitless joys from my heart and take their place. Whether you've never come to Him or whether he's dim to your heart now. Make that your prayer. Sovereign Lord, I'll come and drive those fruitless joys, the things that have a hold, and would you become my sovereign joy? Would you become more glorious and satisfying to my heart than any created thing? That's what we're asking this Christmas. That's why we're memorizing John 1. It's a way to say, God, let this take 
hold in my heart. Let me close this in prayer and ask our musicians to go ahead and come up. Father, we find ourselves in in a world where there is so much counterfeit light. There are so many things that reflect light but are not in and of themselves light. And the reality about our hearts is that we're always running after those things, those temporal things, those physical things. And I, I pray that for each one of us this morning that you would drive from us fruitless joys, things that, that, that just get a grip on our hearts, that you would drive them from our hearts and that you would replace them, that you would become our sovereign joy, that you would become our delight, that you would turn on the lights in our heart and that we would see the light, the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Help us to behold your glory, Lord Jesus. And would that change us? In Christ's name we pray.